0: You're listening to The American Scald, a musicology podcast. Halfdan Karelf, born in 1815, is quite an interesting character in the grand scope of Norwegian music history. I say this because while he wasn't Norway's first romantic composer, he was the first traditional composer, in the sense that he left behind a pretty sizable amount of actual compositions, and dedicated a lot of his time to teaching the next generation of composers after him. See, Thrain and Bull left Norway with very few written pieces of music, so despite all of the work they did pushing Norwegian music culture forward, they did so without actually contributing that much to a written canon of Norwegian music. Thrain died in 1832, with only the play music to Field of with any lasting impact and Bull was gallivanting around the world, composing very niche music which only he, or an equally talented individual, could perform on the violin with an orchestra. When all was said and done, there still wasn't that much in the way of concrete, written-down, composed music for future composers to look to. Of course, they provided direction, vision, and passion which is crucial to the story of Norwegian music history, but they left little tangible evidence of a budding Norwegian music tradition which could be built upon in the sphere of concert or chamber music. This is why Halfdan Karolf is so important, for it was he who managed to bridge the gap between the vision of a Norwegian music tradition and actual concrete musical material for future generations to draw from and build off of. So when I say with some hesitation mind you that Halfdan Karolf was Norway's first romantic composer, it's because Karolf was not just the first composer of the 19th century to leave behind a real prolific and formidable body of piano music and songs, but because he was also incredibly dedicated to educating the generation after him, most notably Agatha backe whom we will be discussing next episode. But why is he called the Norwegian Schubert? Well, it's not as obvious as it may seem, but the two do in fact have quite a bit in common, and you can decide if it's a fitting description of his music for yourself by the end of the episode. So our friend Halfdan Karolf was born in 1815 in Kristiania, what is now called Oslo. He actually wasn't meant to be a musician despite taking piano lessons from an early age, but initially studied law. In his 20s, a vicious bout of tuberculosis sent him to Paris to seek better treatment, and a more friendly climate until he recovered. Just like Thrain and countless Norwegian composers to come, his time in Paris opened up his eyes to the music cultures of a more cosmopolitan Europe, and it inspired him to bring this beautiful music back to Norway with him. Well, as tragic as a story can be, Half of Karolf's family died the same year he returned from Paris. His sister, his father, and his brother Regnald all died in 1840, and one of his other brothers, Hjalmar, died in 1847 while studying art in Germany. In the wake of all of this, Halfdan effectively became the patriarch of the family, so he had to put finances before his passions, and he went into journalism to support the family, but this didn't stop him from pursuing composition on his own time. And lucky for us, and for all of Norwegian music history after him, Karolf apparently found the most solace in music composition, for he would prove to be one of Norway's first prolific composers, writing dozens of short songs in the early lead tradition, that is, German art song, and a seemingly endless supply of charming character pieces for piano. This is the type of music that proved to be what resonated with Norwegians the most, an intimate, more humble style of music made for singing and playing with friends and family in a living room. It's with these songs and piano pieces made with this quote folk simplicity in mind, where we see more early signs of a quintessentially Norwegian style of music found first in field of Fjälldevanturet, and evidently the first signs of a growing middle class in urban Norway as well, the only class of people who would have had the musical training to perform these works and a parlor piano to play them on. Now keep in mind how far behind we are at this point from the rest of Europe. If we can effectively call Kierolf Norway's first prolific composer of romantic music, he's beginning his writing as our most iconic romantic composers in music history, the Schumanns, Mendelssohn, Berlioz, and others, were already well into their careers. We're not even talking about his music being performed or disseminated yet, just being written. So now that Norway's musical life is starting to get off the ground far later than its neighbors to the south, where were Norwegians to look for some sense of tradition and inspiration for what their music ought to sound like? More powerful nations, such as Germany, for instance, had centuries upon centuries of established tradition to draw from by the 19th century. But Norwegian musicians needed some sense of direction for their own budding classical music tradition. Well, after looking at the works of Valdemar Thrain, Lindemann, Colette, Landstad, and Kroger, it was clear that Norwegians were more than happy with looking to their roots, as Kirov demonstrates throughout his entire revoir. To emphasize yet again, remember that up until now, Norway was rather poor, And because it was poor, folk music was actually far more prevalent in day-to-day life than art music was. Remember, the first public concert house had only just been built around 1800, and that's just one concert house in a rather large country. Even as a city dweller, you were not considered an aristocrat yet, because even the richest Norwegians would be little more than commoners by the standards of other European cities. So even the wealthier native Norwegians were more rustic or austere in their lifestyle. Folk music, mostly fiddling, along with church hymns, were the primary source of music activity for a vast majority of Norwegians in the early to mid-19th century. Remember, to follow classical music, you must follow the money. This is why, amongst Kirolf's respectable output of piano miniatures, you won't find nearly as many pieces with recognizable titles such as waltz, intermezzo, nocturne, or minuet as you will those named after the traditional fiddle dances of Norwegian culture, such as the hauling and springdance. In Karolf's work you see for the first time a Norwegian taking a foreign music tradition, that of piano music for the salon, and making it distinctly Norwegian using inspiration from Norway's unique fiddling tradition. Now fiddling is far from unique, and it seems like every country has its own distinct tradition, but Norway's fiddling tradition is unique in the sense that their traditional fiddle isn't your run-of-the-mill violin, but a unique and charming instrument we talked about last week with a Bull, known as the Hardanger Fiddle. The Hardonger Fiddle is quite the storied instrument, with a tradition unique to Norway dating back centuries. The first difference that one may notice is that the Hardonger Fiddle sounds a lot more resonant than a violin. It seems to shimmer or reverberate more, and that's because of its sympathetic strings which a violin doesn't have. Sympathetic strings, simply put, are strings beneath the fretboard that ring freely while the active strings are bowed. It's the sympathetic strings that give the ethereal sound of the Hardonger Fiddle, the Swedish nukleharpa, and even the Indian sitar. Again, citing lack of time and money, Norwegian folk musicians were few and far between, so bands were not only uncommon, but almost unheard of before the 19th century, so their music tradition is almost entirely based on solo instrumental tunes. The sympathetic strings in this regard not only give the instrument a much fuller, louder sound to play over wedding crowds, but they also give the instrument a droning self-accompaniment. With the help of these droning strings, the hardanger fiddle compared to the violin is almost exclusively played polyphonically, which means multiple notes at once. When you think of a normal fiddle tune like an Irish one, for instance, or a classical music piece for violin, you tend to only think of it as playing the melody and not many other notes, save for some brief fingered harmonies played once or twice per measure in the case of classical violin, such as with Bach's violin sonatas. The hardanger fiddle, however, is designed to play two notes at once on top of the sympathetic strings by flattening the bridge, which makes it easier to finger two notes at once. Ale Bull actually did this with all of his violins. All of this together makes Norwegian fiddling incredibly unique when compared to fiddling in the rest of Europe. As we will be discussing the Hardanger Fiddle's role in Norwegian music identity to death over the course of the 19th century, I think it's safe to end this discussion with having us all on the same page about what the Hardanger Fiddle actually is, and why its tradition is so different from the rest of Europe. With all of this in mind, the unique style of Kierolf's piano miniatures might make a little bit more sense, especially if you're already familiar with other 19th century piano music because he wasn't taking inspiration from a violin or an existing piano culture, but of this distinctly Norwegian hardanger fiddle and its rich harmonic qualities. Among Karolf's most distinctive piano works are those titled Springdance, Halling, or Springer, or other notably Norwegian names. When you take the time to listen, note that not only is Karolf doing an impressive job imitating the unique characteristics of the hardanger fiddle on the piano, but he was the first composer to actually practice this tradition of embodying Norwegian folk fiddling on a piano itself, which begins one of the longest and most consistent traditions in Norwegian art music, as we will see with future composers, especially Grieg and Tveit. Listening to any of Kirolf's piano pieces, from Halling to Yostring to Brøreslød to Langeleiklød, you can pretty confidently say that something like this would have never been composed by the hand of a German or an Italian, due to how much it owes to the native tradition of Norway's own music. If you're listening on YouTube, you can find these pieces linked at the end of the video, and on podcasts, you can find the link in the show notes. Now, Collaboration between fiddling and art music wasn't the only strain of Norwegian romanticism continued by Kirov. He also carried on a second, just as important tradition into Norwegian art music as well, which started with Thrain, and that is the tradition of not only art song, but of Norwegian art song. It's important to know that art song was a quintessentially romantic art form for quite a few reasons. First and foremost, it emphasized that growing bond between musician and poet I talked about earlier. Composers were very rarely, if ever, writing their own texts for their art songs. Rather, they would look for pre-existing poems and set those to music instead, and write the music in a way that the composer felt best reflected the mood of the text. Then, you also have the emphasis on cultural and national identity taking form in the Romantic era, and what better way to express that pride in your heritage than by setting your culture's best poets to your music? Another way in which this national pride was cultivated in art music was the love of folk music as we discussed last episode because folk music was seen as the heart of a nation's identity. This is why art song seems more simple or modest than other forms of classical music. Its goal was that of noble simplicity rather than the bombastic pretense of a symphony, which made art song very unique in the 19th century. It was the only genre of classical music with the explicit directive to stay humble, simple, and folk-like, compared to other subgenres like the concerto, which were meant to be incredibly flashy and virtuosic. So here you can see why Norwegians were especially drawn to art song. Where Germans were choosing to be nobly simple with their songs, Norwegians were just accustomed to this idea of noble simplicity as just a base aspect of their music. So for Norwegians, noble simplicity was a way of life as well as a mark of national pride, rather than a new aesthetic to pursue as it was in Germany. But beyond Norwegians finding art song to be the perfect place to express national identity musically, using songs collected by Kröger, Lindemann, and others, there is one other layer that again brings literature and politics into the conversation, and that is the topic of language. We've already discussed at length how the Norwegians were ruled from Denmark for 400 years, but ECB emphasized that they weren't allowed to speak West Norse from the beginning, but were made to speak a hybridization of Danish and West Norse called Riksmål. Well, after the first Norwegian constitution was written in 1814, Norwegians decided that it was high time that they had their own language again, and poets and musicians worked together to both write poems in Norwegian dialects not usually allowed in professional life, and write songs using those poems often reflecting the Norwegian language and spirit most effectively and beautifully. And this trend would also take hold in Norwegian art music just as firmly as the hardanger fiddle tradition would, and it was practiced by several composers to establish not only a national identity in music, but a language as well, as a form of resistance to forced instruction of Danish in schools. So, as someone who works for a Dane, I can already hear those Danish pitchforks being brandished, so I will acknowledge here that it was a very complex issue with a lot of perspectives, but the perspective I'm taking here is that of the Norwegian musicians and poets, so we can better understand why the music developed the way it did. It is a music history podcast, after all. There is a place for arguing and debating the details of these complex socio-political issues, but at least to musicology, what's far more important is how the composers actually felt and what they believed, rather than what actually happened. So, understanding this perspective, the genre of art song proved an incredibly effective and intuitive medium through which composers and poets alike could promote, practice, and encourage the writing and speaking of a true Norwegian language and It was Karolf who put the first steps forward into this new, distinctly Norwegian style of songwriting. His music is just quite simply charming and cozy, and his piano accompaniment works beautifully to underscore his sense of Norwegian pastoral aesthetic. He wrote primarily for the female voice, a deliberate decision, as for many reasons singing in Norwegian folk culture was associated with femininity and fiddling with masculinity. The best examples of Kierolf's distinctive and charming song style can be found throughout his whole body of work, most notably though with songs such as Ingrid's Visa and Sjun Nottagal, which to this day are some of the most beautiful art songs I have ever listened to, even after a whole seminar on German lead at Peabody. So with our soft-spoken friend Keroff, we see the seeds being sown for two stylistic traits which Norwegian romantics would hold quite dear for decades to come. The practice of incorporating hardonger fiddling into the compositions as national signifiers, and the dedication to a thoroughly Norwegian style of song, which, just like the piano pieces inspired by the hardonger fiddle, would truly set the nation's music apart from that of its southern neighbors. The works of Halfdan Keroff laid the framework for future more prolific composers to work in for decades to come, Yes, even the work of Edvard Grieg may not have been possible without the innovations and spirit of Halfdan Keroff. So at the top of the episode, I mentioned that Kerolf is known as something of a Norwegian Schubert. But even if you're familiar with Schubert, you might be thinking that that's somewhat of a stretch. On the surface, it is, in terms of audible style and output, as Keroff never wrote one piano sonata compared to Schubert's 19, to say nothing of all the other music Schubert managed to write in half the lifetime of Karolf's Nine symphonies, two song cycles... But aesthetically, their basic approach to music composition was the same, in that they aimed for this ideal of a folk-like, noble simplicity we talked about earlier. Further, they had similar views about rustic rural simplicity as the ideal source for song. They both buried their grief in their compositions, and both had a really keen sense of how to evoke strong emotions out of pastoral musical signifiers from the piano and the voice. But because of their different cultures and influences, their music comes out sounding considerably different despite having the same vision. And to me at least, the biggest and most important parallel with Schubert is the fact that Karolf and his Norwegianist aesthetics were making a difference not on concert stages around the world as they were with A La Bull, but in the home. Which is just as important, especially when you consider music's potential to nourish, stimulate, and foster social and political change. With Karolf's music, the quintessential Norwegian sound and Norwegian language were being introduced into Norwegian home life, parallel to a growing Norwegian middle class. Thus, through the music of Karolf, this growing middle class was being given music to play in their own homes which mirrored the growing importance being placed on Norwegian culture in the national consciousness. So you see, through the combined efforts of Olav Bull and Halfdan Karol, this growing Norwegianism movement, that is, a social and political movement seeking to respect, acknowledge, and assert the Norwegian independence movement, was now taking on a two-pronged approach, influencing people both around the Western world through Bull's concerts and within Norwegian homes with Karolf's songs and piano works. To again paraphrase Karen Larsen's words from a few episodes ago, with Keroff and Bull, Norwegianism was no longer just a stream, but a mighty river which would carry all of Norway along with it. If there's one lesson I want us to take away from Halfdan Keroff, it's this. I've mentioned a few times now that it's no uncommon sentiment that all classical music sounds the same. While that's arguably not true either way, it doesn't help that we only tend to listen to and promote the same handful of composers over and over again. It's only once we bring other nations and composers into the spotlight with diverse upbringings and backgrounds, such as Halfdan Keroff, that we truly begin to see the potential for diversity of expression in classical music. And so friends, that wraps up this week's episode of the American Scalds Musicology Podcast. If you're listening on YouTube, be sure to like, subscribe, and leave a comment, and if you're on podcast, be sure to subscribe and leave a review as well. Reviews, comments, likes, and subscriptions are all incredibly important to getting this show off the ground. On that note, I am still sitting at 8 5-star reviews on Apple Podcasts, and I'd love to see that number hit 10 reviews if you've got the time. You can find me on Instagram and YouTube under the same name, or visit my website theamericanscult.com to see the work I do or leave a tip as I do all of this for free. Now regarding questions, I'd love to hear from you via email or direct message on social media, and please leave a comment with any questions you still have unanswered about Norwegian music history up until this point. I'd love to answer some questions at the top of each show. If you find yourself becoming enchanted with Nordic art music, be sure to join the hundreds of us over at r nordicsound Sound on Reddit. So as always, thank you for listening, and I look forward to seeing you on the next episode of The American Scald, a musicology podcast.